0: I'd like to thank Motley Fool for sponsoring this episode. I've said before on ads that looking after yourself financially gets harder and harder with the cost of everything going up. Being a tight Scotsman, I use every method I can possible to save a little here or make the most of what I have there. Motley Fool is one way that you can definitely look to maximise your income from investments. The age of stock picking is here with towering inflation and elevating interest rates. Sticking your money in a passive market just isn't going to get you what it you to but it doesn't mean you have to abandon the market there are still ways to invest for the future you just need to know where to look which is where the motley fool comes in the motley fool stock advisor service highlights two stocks each and every month for members to add to their portfolios and it literally is paid to listen to them historically their average stock recommendation is up over 400 percent as of april 10th 2023 and listeners of That UFO Podcast can now access Motley Fool Stock Advisor for just $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the list price. What are you waiting for? Visit full.com forward slash that UFO. That's F-O-O-L.com slash T-H-A-T-U-F-O to start your investing journey today. discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price.
1: This is Leslie Kane and you're listening to That UFO Podcast.
0: You've mentioned on your own show about the the red line of disclosure. And I just wonder, could you explain in your own words to the listeners and viewers what that is?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, Basically, the red line is the line you must not cross. It's the line beyond which potentially catastrophic results can happen. And in my view, uh, the real red line of disclosure is acknowledgement of crash retrievals of technology and bodies. I think that's the real red line For, for the United States government to say. We have, in fact, recovered craft. We have them in our possession. Uh, The reason I think that's the red line is because it, it implicates, more than implicates, it proves that the United States government has actively lied to the world for essentially an entire human lifetime. And I just see that as a very difficult position for the U.S. government to put itself into willingly. Now, that red line at some point will be crossed. I've often said, you know, UFO disclosure is a paradox. It's it's impossible and it's inevitable. It's both. It is really both. It is impossible in the sense that the, 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 there's no motivation, as I see it, for those who have this secret ever willingly to give it up. But in a sense, you could say it's inevitable, like the end of secrecy. Nothing can be secret forever, can it? I don't think so. At some point, uh, this secret is likely to come out. Although bear in mind, we still don't have an official truth on the JFK assassination. And that was over 60 uh, 60 years ago. And we're still lied to basically by that. But I think the UFO secret one day will come out. And, uh, but how? And what was your question? I I think I just lost my train of thought here, Andy. I'm so sorry.
0: (laughs) No, it it was just your explanation of what that red line of disclosure is. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I would love if you could follow up though with that. Do you think there's a way that that disclosure can happen that satisfies the needs of the UFO community, which you're right is a small bubble, the public, which is the ninety nine point nine percent, and also the the gatekeepers of the secrets. Is there any way it can happen that? And actually, goes back to what you said before that. And I, I don't know about this point, and I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before, that the US government acknowledging the UFO truth, shall we say, would be an admission of 90 years of lies and potential criminal investigations. Would the masses, 99.9%, the, the friends that you have, the friends that I have, the people who don't listen to this, that don't read your books, that don't necessarily care about the UFO topic like we do, will they care about, the 90 years of lies when they find out there are aliens on the planet, because for me, that puts a full stop and everyone moves on. You might still have a small section of UFO Twitter complaining about, okay, so what happened at Roswell and, you know, Philip Corso and Rendlesham. Most people. I think you're,
1: you're hitting the nail on the head here. I think you're, you're speaking to a very fundamentally important point. Uh, I mean, I look at myself and my life and I'm, I'm not a normal person. I'm a crazy fanatic who has been thrown into this field for 30 years. And before that, I was, a I was a fanatic about all the other kinds of scholarly ventures and things like that. I live in the world of ideas. Ideas matter to me. They're important to me. I think they're important to you. They're probably they're important to many of the listeners of this podcast, but to most people, no, they're not. And, and I, that's not to criticize them. I grew up in a very working class family, totally working class family. I would never expect my uh, dear departed grandmother to have gotten into this issue and grasp it like that's not what she was about. And I would never expect that of her, nor of so many other wonderful, beautiful friends that I've had in my life that we're all that way. And so unfortunately, people are extremely easy to manipulate, unbelievably easy. It is so easy. And and in, in fact, it's easier now than I think ever before, because I think, organizations that are running propaganda that, uh, they, they really know what they're doing. They're very, very good at this. So I think it's, unless someone is, uh, really dedicated to, uh, pull ripping through the many veils that exist to block our, our vision of reality, it's never going to happen. It's very difficult. Look, I mean, I've fanatically tried to do this for, uh, more than forty years, uh, more than forty years since I was a, a young man, and um, and I'm still learning. It's still difficult, and I have all of these advantages. Like I've been dedicated to doing it, and I've I have a good memory, and I can I can look at these things, and I still struggle. It's still a challenge for me. I how can any of my neighbors be expected to really get this? I mean, they don't have the desire. They don't have most people don't really have much of an education in these matters either. So it's going to be very easy to manipulate the public. Uh, Will, I think think what's happening is, uh, you know, 10 plus years ago, I used to describe disclosure as like a foot race between the public and the elites, as it were. So if uh, the public got to the finish line first, that would mean we were able to get a major leak or major truth bomb out there before the... The global system is locked down. Is really what we're living in is a global revolution right now. No one talks about it like this. No one calls it a global revolution. But you and I and everyone watching this, we are living in a global revolution. It is centrally directed. It is breathtaking in its power and scope. Uh, COVID proved this, if anyone really doubts it, when you see the, this sim, the the identical nature of all of the talking points of all the governments, the identical nature of their lockdown measures. Uh, all of this was centrally coordinated when we see the uh imposition of a complete digital twenty four seven surveillance over people in a whole variety of ways uh and and the creation of essentially a global technocracy that that literally is what we are seeing so if if they get to the to finish line first, in other words, if they can create a completely curated, controlled global information system then they win because, because uh, disclosure will be very carefully managed on their terms according to their narrative. And it will be very difficult for outsiders or independent researchers to be able to get an alternate point of view in. And I do think that's what's happening. I think that uh, to me, it looks like the, the global revolution forces are, uh, have the advantage. It's not game over yet, but I think they have the advantage in this struggle.
0: You made a point earlier about how it's almost laughable that we are learning about the UFO topic for the first time because the US government is learning about it for the first time as it goes along and goes, oh, Tic Tacs appeared in 2004. We should investigate this. Let's create a task force. And it's almost they're pretending the history of the subject never happened. Given everything you've just said in the last half hour or so, is it almost inevitable and acceptable That if that's how we're going to get some form of capital D disclosure, that someone like yourself or myself just has to accept it as, okay, if this is how it's going to be, and we have to forget the past almost for now, would you go along with that being disclosure, an acceptable disclosure?
1: Well, it wouldn't be for me. Uh, I mean, there's... (sighs) it would be very difficult for for a higher authority to shut me up and to make me stop talking about all of the incredible ufo history that exists i've written two volumes of that history i have more that are on the way and and to me the the history you know bob marley didn't he say if you know your history then you know where you're coming from we have to know our history and if and if we lose our history we really do lose ourselves and um, we are moving into a, a truly Orwellian era. We're already in it, but it just gets worse. Where history is rewritten, history is erased. This is what happened in the old Soviet era. It's really not any different. It, it's like not any different, uh, maybe by a slight matter of degree, but I don't even know if that's significant anymore. That uh, and and you know, like those individuals, Soviet era intellectuals in Eastern Europe and in the so- old Soviet Union they had to struggle. Uh, they had to just wait it out. They had to just live the best they could and and um, speak as freely as they were able to. And they had to deal with a very repressive system. And I I tend to believe that is what we are here moving into. I think we are moving into an, a very intellectually repressive system uh, in in the service of a global revolution that I think those uh, people who, are, who think that they're smart enough to run our world, they think that they can do. And uh, where these other beings fit in is really the big, big question. And uh, every once in a while, I, I have to ask, is there a relationship between this dramatic global revolution that we are seeing right now and 80 plus years of intense presence by other beings on this planet? Those beings may have been here even longer than that, but in my view, when I look at the numbers, when I look at the scale, something changed in the middle of the 20th century where large numbers, I think, of them arrived here. What's their attitude about what we're doing? I think that they probably support this because what we're doing is we're turning ourselves into something like them. We're creating something like a hive mind, really, in a way. We're creating a, a, an integrated data, a digital system where information is tracked, where people are tracked, where uh, there's really not going to be any more wiggle room for things like freedom any longer or much less. And I think, is this you know, is this what they think we're supposed to do? Is this the next stage of humanity where we turn ourselves into a big giant anthill? I don't know. But I do know that uh, I was not born into that world. I was born into a world where I believe in freedom, where I believe in freedom of inquiry. And so... You know, for my part, I'm always going to continue doing what I do, which is to delve into the the truth about the UFO phenomenon, uh, the history, which must never be forgotten, and all of the other uncomfortable aspects of this subject, which include things, I think, like abductions, personal encounters, and and an agenda, or multiple agendas, perhaps, by these other beings. To me, this is important. And if we're not talking about what these other beings are about, then... Uh, well, that's not good for us because we need to understand if this is real, then that means there are other intelligences that are operating here. And if we're 80 or 90 or more years into this, and we're only now just publicly asking, hey, what, what, what is this after all? We're really behind. We really need to bring, bring up our game and uh, start asking better questions. Yeah, and
0: you make a really good point as well that these other beings would have to have an awareness of that situation because you could keep the best secret on the planet for the longest time. But if the other being, other person, whatever that secret may be, they have their role to play. And if they come forward and they park a tic-tac next to the, the Eiffel Tower in Paris, you know, short of saying the the old flying saucer on the White House lawn, that, that changes everything, doesn't it? Or even for the United States... If Russia and or China, for example, come forward and and say something first, that again changes the whole conversation and there's a scramble for a control of the narrative at that point. So is this potentially a case of the US and whichever controlling power you, you feel is behind that because the US is very much at the forefront of this, whether we like it or not in terms of a global conversation right now on the face of things, then you want to get ahead of the conversation much like Leslie and Ralph did with the New York Times that the US would say, do you know what, let's control this as best we can. Is that then what's happening?
1: Yes, I think. Uh, yes, there's definitely that among the members of uh, the elite class, although in, in the last article by Leslie and Ralph, I mean, they published that in the debrief, which is, I wouldn't quite say fringe, but it's a, it's a smaller publication that's I don't think it's part of that whole establishment nexus. So I think Leslie and Ralph got that article out because they were literally unable to put it in any other establishment publication. And in fact, that has muted its, its effectiveness. Mm. Like if the New York times would have published that piece or even the Washington post, it would have had more power as a news story than it did. Um, You mentioned the aliens landing on the next of the Eiffel tower. And you know, the fact they haven't done that, they haven't landed uh, openly in an, ex- you know, in a, in a way that would allow the rest of the world to say, aha, they're here. So they have their own agenda for secrecy. And, uh, Russia and China, both, pres- certainly Russia has had a, a very extensive history of interaction with these UFOs. Uh, I think China has also, we don't know as much about China's, uh, history there, but I remember, uh, chatting with, uh, uh, Sun Shi Li of China, I think he's their leading UFO researcher, he has said that China has, he believes China has recovered at least one craft in the 1990s. Maybe true. Russia, we know, has had a lot of interaction, and yet they're saying nothing. Russia says nothing. And so the question is why? And I think because all of these nations realize, the leaders realize that this is a can of worms that once is opened, it's like Pandora's box is a better analogy. Once it's opened, you, it, it's it's going to be very difficult to contain or or predict what the next thing will be. And uh, instability is something these these nations don't want. They don't want that, uh, especially a, cu- a country like Russia, which relies at least in large part on exporting its natural gas and then petroleum products. Uh, you you have to wonder: is there a post petroleum secret? You know, implicit in the UFO mystery. I mean, after all, whatever these objects are using to get by from point A to point B, it's probably not, probably not uh, gasoline. (laughs) It's probably something better than that. And so, uh, you could argue it's a threat to the petroleum-based system that we have. And I can't imagine Russia would be excited about uh, challenging that. The Chinese would probably have their own reasons for not disclosing as as does the United States. So the, the real power players in this world, I think, are united in their desire probably to keep this as secret as long as possible. And we're marching
0: towards the end of our time. So I want to finish off with a few questions. And ideally, I've got a couple of listener questions to touch on as well. I wanted to know, Richard, in the last almost six years since that New York Times article, what's been the biggest thing that surprised you about the, the journey we've been on?
1: I think uh, I, I was very impressed by the uh, New York Times article in 2019, I think May of 2019 or April, that Leslie and Ralph and Helene Cooper, I think, was part of it, where they talked about the USS Roosevelt off the eastern coast of the United States. And uh, that was where we learned about uh, Ryan Graves, Navy pilot, where we learned of the massive number of encounters that took place in 2014 and 2015 off the eastern United States coast uh, with the Roosevelt Carrier Group. Uh, those, I thought, were quite extraordinary. And actually, we've had a number of remarkable leaks. Jeremy Corbell, um, filmmaker and, and uh, a, I guess, friend of mine, I've known Jeremy for almost 10 years now, uh, has done very good work in, in getting some leaked data out as well. Some of it's quite impressive. I mean, the object that it appears to be dropping into the water off the coast of California, I think is quite extraordinary. And I think that qualifies as a genuine USO, underwater UFO. So there's been some really interesting UFO cases that have come out since the, the door was opened in 2017. I think it's been very interesting to see that, um, you know, reaching, reaching the public, which in previous years, uh, not much was reaching the public. So I think that's been interesting. Um, The fact that the United States government has has taken even what baby steps it has toward looking at this matter, some of it, I think, has been disingenuous. Anything that the Pentagon does, I think, is is not to be taken on good faith. But I think I wonder about some members of U.S. Congress, and some of them strike me as genuinely interested in uh, getting to the bottom of this matter. So I think that's been interesting. It's been interesting to see that there are people in positions of uh, public responsibility and power who are willing to talk in a positive way about the UFO reality as, as if it's as if it's real, which it is real. So I think that's been a positive thing. But it hasn't really uh, made its way to any any level of public acknowledgement that's affecting the public in any way yet? So we have a such a long way to go.
0: A good time to mention: Jeremy Corbell was on the podcast last year, and very kindly has kept in touch with me ever since, and should be coming back on in a few weeks' time. So for anyone checking out this interview purely because you're on Richard, Jeremy Corbell will be will be back on very very soon, and he's done a lot of great work in the last few months, along with George Knapp. Um, yes. And I wonder—I was going to ask this earlier, and I, I skipped past it because the conversation moved on. Who who do you, Richard Dolan, look to for your UFO news? Do you have any particular outlets or podcasts or particular journalists that you think are the go-to folks for for UFO news?
1: Uh, not as many as I probably should. I uh, I deal with a lot of historical information, so I'm I read a lot of old books. But in terms of contemporary stuff, um, I remain friends and friendly with Linda Malt and Howe. I adore Linda. I, I try to catch her YouTube as often as I can. It's not often enough. Uh, I do think Jeremy and George Knapp do excellent work. And I do like to follow their um, their show, Weaponized. Um, for video stuff, I don't really watch too much else. But there are UFO websites that I go to for research purposes on a regular basis. And um in terms of getting the news, honestly, people write to me all the time. So I don't I don't really need to even be hunting this stuff down. It's crazy. But anytime, like when, when Grush uh came out with his statement, that was on June 5th, uh, my inbox was flooded with all kinds of people letting me know, oh, there's this new bombshell. Of course, my wife Tracy saw it before any of those people and woke me up and said, you're going to need to deal with this. (laughs) So I, I have, uh, I'm in a good position where I've got folks constantly, uh, peppering me with information. A few of them are just private friends who are, uh, very much on top of contemporary UFO news and they, they have access to me and they, they will feed me the information that they know I want.
0: I'd like to thank Wongo Puzzles for sponsoring this episode. My house is filled with all sorts of jigsaws, shape games and puzzles. Definitely a favourite of the family. A very welcome addition to those has been Wongo Puzzles. If you're looking to try something new and exciting, then pick up a custom designed, unique, handcrafted puzzle from Wongo Puzzles. It's the perfect balance of good fun and a challenge. Even the folks in Congress who couldn't work VLC media player during live UFO hearings would be able to give it a go. They are 100% wooden puzzles. They will last forever. Each piece is hand-drawn so no two pieces are the same and you'll discover some fun whimsy pieces as you work through it they come in a custom wooden box which is perfect for storage and gifting personally i'm a big fan of the snow globe puzzle gives you that all year round festive feeling and you'll see what i mean if you pick that one up What are you waiting for? Go to wongopuzzles.com and pick up your puzzle today and be sure to use the promo code THATUFO to get 10% off your order. This is the most fun you've had with a puzzle guaranteed or your money back. Go to wongopuzzles.com and use the code THATUFO to get 10% off your order and get puzzling right now. What's been your biggest change in mindset from Richard Dolan of 2000, say, or even the mid-1990s to 2023? Is there anything you say, wow, I've really swung from A to B on that? Yeah, a
1: couple of things. Uh, one is, you know, I I uh, was trained in my uh, historical work back way back in olden times uh, not to believe in grand conspiracies. It's really an important thing within the academic world, especially the, like, Department of History where I was studying. Uh, that was considered really loose-headed to believe in conspiracies of any sort. It's really kind of a weird thing, uh, but it was ingrained in uh, the Department of History where I was studying. Uh, you could believe in, in bad motivations by people and things like this, but conspiracies, no, absolutely not. And once I started delving into the UFO subject, I I was very hesitant i it It really was difficult for me to go into a conclusion that there really was a grand conspiracy to cover up knowledge about the UFO subject. But after studying it long enough, I could not come to any other conclusion. So that was an early one. Another uh, dramatic change is in the nature, not just what I think of the nature of the phenomenon, but really by extension, what I think in the nature of reality itself. I got into studying remote viewing. Because of the UFO subject, I became aware that there are these guys called remote viewers who were, you know, trained through CIA and Stanford Research Institute, Hal Putoff and Russell Targ, both of whom are friends of mine to this day. I know Hal and Russell quite well, uh, that they train these guys who are like psychic spies. And, and I learned early on that these people were bumping into extraterrestrials in their, in their psychic journeys. And I became interested in that. I was like, what is going on with that? Is this real? Is this fantasy? Well, I don't think it's fantasy. Not at all. I married a remote viewer, but I also have come to understand a lot about that program. And and delving into that has dramatically transformed my idea, not just of these alien beings, but of what our reality even is. I mean, to me, it's far more interesting than I could have thought back in the 1990s when I was still very much in a kind of a mechanistic worldview. So that's changed. Um, you know, I've, I've, when I started out, I, I didn't want to get into anything that was really truly bizarre. I was so conservative in the 1990s with this. In fact, I used to joke with myself. I said, "Well, I'll study UFOs, but nothing weird, like no abductions, no crop circles, no." Uh, no psi phenomena, um, nothing really, truly bizarre. I didn't want to get into that. I just was nuts and bolts, just the facts. But the fact is that that's like analogous to going to this incredible beach, this amazing ocean, and you go out to the shore and you just dip your toe in the little bit of the water in the front and, and you don't go swimming. But at some point, well, you have to go swimming if you want to experience what this is. So what I've come to see is that the UFO subject, for me anyway, opened a doorway to a a very thorough, I would say, reevaluation of reality in almost any way that I can imagine. So it's been a, a genuine education, far far beyond anything that I could have predicted uh, thirty yeah thirty years ago when I started this. I could not have seen where I was going. So so on that note, if you could stick your head back through a portal on
0: Skinwalker Ranch and tell yourself you know, 30 years ago, a little bit of advice, what would it be?
1: Uh, in terms of this subject, I, I would actually say, go straight ahead, go do exactly what you think you want to do because, and just, I think the, the best thing to say to anybody who's starting out in this is be fearless, make yourself fearless because this is a hell of a topic and it, when I, I say fearless, I mean don't be afraid to challenge the assumptions that you grew up with that you think uh, govern the world because they're probably wrong. Uh, I remembered reading in a in a book by John Mack, who of course was a great thinker who was into the UFO subject. Of course, John Mack, a Harvard psychiatrist psychologist, and one thing John Mack said, uh, I think it was I can't remember which of his books he said really what we do in this world is we're, we're living, we're living in, we're born into a world of illusion and our job is to, if we care about this is to strip away those illusions and arrive into the realm of truth. I think that's right. Uh, but to do that is, it's difficult because we, we need all of us. I include myself here. We all need a kind of psychological foundation upon which we can deal with the world. We have to know, like, what do we believe? What's true? What's not true? And when you come to rely on a certain thing being true, and then you discover one day that it wasn't true, that's a very difficult thing to confront because it, it also tells you that all of those years in your past, you were, you were basing your actions on false ideas, and, and nobody wants to believe that, especially someone who is college educated. Or they they think that they're educated, uh, they think they're ahead of the curve, they think they're smart. I'll tell you, people who are professionally accomplished, this is not what they want to hear. You don't want to be forty five years old and then realize, holy shit, everything I thought I knew was just completely wrong. <laughs> That's not what you want to hear. It's difficult. So uh, to to confront it, you have to. You really have to be brave. It requires genuine bravery, and uh, and the willingness. To change your opinion. I, I've had to change my opinion even within the UFO field many times, you know. Um, and when you become publicly known, it's harder to change your opinion, by the way, because there's all this pressure. Everyone forms their idea about what they think you're supposed to be. Mm. And it's all too easy. I've seen this with a lot of other public figures, frankly, where they uh, stake out their little intellectual turf. And that's, that's their, their safety zone. And they don't want to challenge it because they've made their public career in, in this capacity. Uh, I know this is true of certain UFO skeptics. I know for a fact that they, they have to maintain where they are because they've created that space for themselves. That's their, public, that's their public space. And then you just, you know, you convince yourself. We all find ways of, of uh, lying to ourselves and making ourselves believe things. But I think the real truth is really being honest. That's the hardest thing to do. Really being honest with oneself about one's beliefs to say nothing about what we are personally in our personal lives. That's a whole other thing. But just being honest with ourselves about what is true and what is not true, that takes guts. And uh, anyone who goes through that process has my respect. I don't need to agree with them on the specifics of this phenomenon. My, My point is if someone's on that journey and they are questioning their reality, well done.
0: Well, a few folks who have questioned the reality got in touch with some listener questions. If we could fire through a couple of these, Richard, and we'll keep the S for next time. Uh, Wayne Wayne from the Philippines says he's a big fan of both of our shows, so thank you. Um, He asks, do we really need
1: disclosure or is ignorance bliss? I guess that depends on your perspective of life, you know? I mean, for me, I've heard this many times. People would say, we don't need disclosure. We know what's true. I know the truth. And the answer to that is yes, you do know the truth. Like You don't, you don't need the government to tell you what is true. Uh, we'll get to the ignorance is bliss part in a moment. But for that part, what I would say is disclosure does matter if you care about genuine, let us say, democratic governance, democratic institutions. If you believe that the government is responsible to you and not the reverse, if you believe that you, the citizen, are sovereign, if you have that belief, then I think disclosure should matter. Because government is, uh, I mean, if you hold that belief, uh, maybe kind of social contract theory or something like that, then it's it's not to prove that aliens are real. It's to keep the government responsible to you. We don't want to have a a society in which government actors can just willfully lie to us and treat us like we're four years old and spoon feed us bullshit for the rest of our lives. We don't don't want that, do we? I don't think we do. So on that basis, I think disclosure is very important. Now, the whole thing about ignorance is bliss. Yes, it is. It's bliss until reality bites you in the ass, and, and it's not. But for the most part, ignorance is bliss. Uh, yeah, I've got friends. I hear them talking about the local football teams and that stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I kind of admire it. I can't go there. It's not possible for me at this point. I grew up following sports. I love it. It's fun, but I can't get into that mindset, but I have people out in the world and I know them, they're friends and that's important to them. And they live in that world. Um, and that's fine. I have, uh, other friends, they live on, you know, Facebook rumors and what their friends are doing and this and all of that. And that's their world. And who am I to say like you, that you shouldn't do that? It's not for me to say. Uh, people have to find their own way to achieve genuine happiness in their world. And it is certainly not for me to say, you need to know everything about the conspiracies and cover-ups that are going on in this world. I mean, unfortunately... Uh, that helps these types of things continue when because you have an apathetic public. But it's also not fair for me to expect uh, someone who is not – they don't have the background. They don't have the desire. Um, no, they, it's not fair for me to expect them to get on board with everything that I'm doing or that you're doing. So ignorance can be bliss. It's not for me to fault them. But for those who care about the UFO subject, for those who are interested in I think disclosure does matter Uh, to the extent of of public – it's a matter of public responsibility by the government to be responsive and not to just lie. I mean, you realize we don't even expect truth from our governments anymore. We literally don't expect them to, to be truthful. And so we don't get that angry when we know they lie to us. 50, 60, 70 years ago, our grandparents would have been absolutely furious at that type of an attitude. They would not have I mean, they were lied to also, but they didn't realize they were being lied to. Uh, and they would have cared a lot more than I think we care today. I think we, we've devolved... To a point where we just we just accept the lies, and that's a bad place to be. I don't think we want to be there.
0: Yeah, I think society is massively desensitized to that, and I think even and I'll include my own wife in this, who won't listen to this. So if people want to tag her on Twitter, feel free. But if indeed we had that announcement this evening that aliens were real and here's the craft and the bodies, my wife would say, "Well, that's incredible." Okay, back to the Kardashians, back to Real Housewives of Orange County. That's that's what would happen. I think still for a lot of folks, it would be okay. What's on TV tonight and things move on.
1: Well, it's true. I mean, partly, I mean, there's entertainment like that, if we want to call that entertainment, but there's a real reality. People have jobs. You know, if there is a genuine disclosure, you are still probably going to have to go to work the next day. So we still have lives that we have to live. And so we can't allow ourselves to be dominated even, even by this profound reality. Uh, life will continue, but, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I've said everything I can say on that at the moment.
0: <laughs> no, that's very fair. Um, a question from Newman, and Newman always sends in some, some good questions. Can we take experiencer accounts about the nature, behavior, and societal organization of the Greys slash as a warning for our own possible dangerous point of convergence of humanity's own future development? If so, how can humanity position itself to prevent from becoming like our visitors?
1: Well, Newman... Outstanding question. I will just say, dude, I covered this at great length in a recent book of mine called The Alien Agendas. This was almost this was possibly my number one theme. And uh it's disturbing to me. Uh I, I have a theory, I believe this is true, that humanity is entering what I call the fourth stage, our fourth stage of humanity. What is that? Well, our first stage we had for hundreds of thousands of years. We lived as hunters and gatherers. All human societies did this. About 10,000 years ago, we entered our second stage, which was when we domesticated animals and we domesticated plants and had agriculture and started settling into larger towns. That gave us ancient Egypt. That gave us the Roman Empire. That gave us the Italian Renaissance. It was a great run. We did great with it. A few hundred years ago, we entered our third stage, which was science and industry industrial revolution, the scientific revolution that totally transformed our world. I think those are the fundamentals. There's variations within them, of course, but you really think about it. They created a new social organization, political organization, economics, cosmology, worldview. They were fundamental. And now I think we're moving into a fourth stage, which is partly transhumanism, partly uh, just total digital control, digital Information management, an integrated digital system, perhaps we can call it. Uh, And also, you know, age of computers and age of artificial intelligence, all of that. It's fundamentally going to transform human nature into uh, what I can't help but think is a kind of hive mind or a big anthill. Um, And we are serving that system. We can't help but serve that system. I believe that aliens have achieved that level of reality already. The Greys, I think, are um, one iteration, one example of that. Yes, I do believe that. And I do think that we are moving toward that type of a model. I mean, it's not going to happen overnight. We're not going to see it happen. But I think um, maybe in a few centuries, we're going to have a very, very, very radically different social organization than we have now. And it is likely to be more like what we see in accounts of these other beings. I do think that, yes. Uh, how to stop it? Because I don't think it's a good thing, but am I just like uh, Grandpa Simpson shouting, sh- shaking my fist at the clouds? Is that what I'm doing? Maybe that's all that is. I'm complaining about something that I have no ability to change and that perhaps is inevitable. Maybe it is. I don't know. But I I see it as, as an unfortunate development. Um, I don't think I want to see humanity turn into something like that, to me, that just seems like a waste. But but here's the thing. I I have been thinking a lot about the development of, of human societies of late. I'm I'm very deeply interested in things like paleoanthropology. And I don't really talk about this with ancient aliens people, but I'm deeply interested in our origin as a species and as a civilization. It's important to me. And and what I believe is that all of our evolution as a species and in our technology has has had one and only one purpose, which is to increase the power of the human social organization, the human group. That's really what it comes down to. That's why we organize militarily. That's why we develop language. I think that's why we developed uh, tools and weapons. We had the cognitive ability to do so, but we we developed cognitive ability through our evolutionary process. It was a very unusual thing, but we did it. and And all of our developments as a society ever since have been to increase the power of the group over other groups. And so there has been, in other words, a kind of inexorable logic to all development of the human species ever since we reached that threshold where we had a a cognitive threshold. And we're seeing it now, it's it's never stopped. So, uh, you know, from the invention of the spear, the invention of the arrow, to metallurgy, to pottery, all all of those things, Increase the power of the group, and uh, and that means even social organization, where you have like an Egyptian pharaoh, he's the god king. Well, he was actually necessary for that society at that time for it to have its uh, po- most powerful group expression, I believe. And uh, that's all we're seeing now. So, will you know strong AI and transhumanism and twenty four seven? surveillance and kind of minority reporting of you as a psychological profile? Are all of that going to be uh, inevitable to increase the power of our human group? It will diminish uh, our power, perhaps individually, but to increase the power of the collective. I think that's what it's all about. And I, I do think we are looking at that type of a development, and that is likely to bring us more in line with some of these other extraterrestrial groups that I believe are here. So anyway, I think Newman had a great question. Is there a way to stop that? I I don't know. I really don't know how to stop that.
0: Well, if you'll do me one final listener question for this this effort, uh, you've been very uh, gracious with your time, Richard. A uh, question from Peter. Peter. Peter sent in about five questions, so I've picked one. Um, all of a relatively similar theme. So thanks, Peter. Um, Richard has stated that uh, Doctor Stephen Greer's view that all non-human intelligences are entirely benevolent and that abductions and animal mutilations are U.S. government disinformation is mistaken and a naive, if not a dangerous, assumption. What is the best historical evidence that Richard? Would point to that clearly disproves Greer's hypothesis?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Well, I think that I could easily put together a mass of evidence to support what I say here. Uh, the, the, one of the problems that I have is, you know, first of all, there's a statement that he has made multiple times that literally all extraterrestrial groups that are here are non-hostile. He has said this explicitly. That's almost a verbatim quote. And he said it more than once. All are non-hostile. So question number one is, uh, it's, not, it's not on me to disprove him. In my view, it is on him to prove his statement. And the argument he has given, time and again, is utterly specious. The argument he has given is that, well, they haven't declared war on us or blown us up. That proves they're not hostile, to which I say that's utter nonsense. That's some of the weakest reasoning I could imagine. Earth is incredibly valuable. Why would you want to nuke or destroy Earth to wipe out humanity if you want this planet? You wouldn't do that. This planet is far too valuable. There may be other planets that have life on them, but they may not all be like Earth. We have life everywhere. We are teeming with an unbelievable amount of life. This is an incredibly lucky place for us to be and it has got to be valuable. I don't care how many other planets are there that have life. Um... I'm sure there's other planets that have life, but they are not all right next door to each other. What we have is a beautiful gem out in space and we get to live here. So no, the fact that aliens haven't declared war and blown us up, that's a ridiculous argument that he made to to prove that they're not hostile. There are all kinds of bits of evidence of infiltration. I, I personally have spoken with a number of individuals who have told me directly of their encounters with human-looking non-humans. That doesn't mean that these non-humans are malevolent. I don't know that they're malevolent. They, they may be uh, on a mission that I can't quite get or fathom. But the fact is, they are here covertly. I don't like that. I'm allowed not to like that. I'm allowed to criticize the fact that there's a covert, clandestine presence, whether of human-looking or non-human-looking beings that are here doing things. I would like to know what the hell that's about. Now, maybe they're not hostile, but that doesn't mean that I need to be sanguine about it and just say, Oh yeah, well, they're fine. They're here to help us. I don't know that they're here to help us. I'd like to know They are life forms, just like we are. They were undoubtedly apex predators on their world. As we are here, apex predators means you, you are used to getting your own way. Just like we are, we take it for granted that we can just run this planet, you know, take, Take the sheep, take the goats, take the cows and say, okay, you're working for us now. And I'm going to chop you up and eat in a little while. You're going to live here. We just do that because we feel we can and we're able to. Uh, They're probably the same way. That's how they got here. They're used to achievement. They're used to excelling in what they do. Uh, But in terms of evidence, uh, you know, talking about his uh, theory of programmable life forms, PLFs, all right? So if there had been PLFs since, what, the 1960s, 1950s, there are cases of these beings reported that early. There are even cases that reports earlier still, but let's just leave those aside. Is he to tell me that we really invented PLFs in the 1960s? Really? I don't believe it. I'll call absolute BS on that every time. Even in the 1970s, even in the 1980s, I don't believe it. I don't see the science there. This is a highly, highly sophisticated genetic engineering and cybernetics. Uh, I don't see a shred of evidence, even in the black world, that makes me believe that they had this ability. And, and to my knowledge, Greer hasn't put forth any evidence whatsoever about these PLFs. I know other people talk about, Linda Moulton has even talked about PLFs. Uh, but look, I'm going to need a little bit more than someone's uh, talk. An allegation. I need something. A little bit of science would be helpful. There's just no, uh, there's nothing to hang your hat on here. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a black budget world where there are men in black and things like that. But we're talking alien programmable life forms, as he puts it. And so, really, no, the onus is not on me to disprove him. The onus is on him, really, to make his case, uh, which, in my view, he has never done. And, I, and I I'll just say the last thing. The reason I think that it's, it is actually dangerous to say some of the things he's said is because if, if we're in a situation, which it looks like, where you've got a large-scale presence around the world of high level of intelligence doing something, including dead-of-night abductions and dead-of-night surveillance, well, you know, I think we are entitled to, to ask, what's this all about? What is going on? And, and for someone to say, oh, well, we know they're the good guys and we, our military, are the bad guys. And they need, we just need to let them do what they're doing. And we need to, like, not shoot at them and all of us. Uh, you know, he's not in a position to say that. And I, I don't know what the full answer is. Are they all negative? I'm sure they're not all negative to us, I would imagine. Are some potentially negative to us? Why would that be so difficult to believe? Why is it an outrageous statement to say that at least one or maybe more than one of these groups really th- considers us to be a nuisance? Because when you get right down to it, we are a nuisance. We we are a species that doesn't play nice. We, we, we don't play nice with other species on this planet. We absolutely are used to getting our own way. Uh, we have done... Uh, Whether you're conservative or liberal or whatever, we've done a lot of damage to our global environment. We had a pristine, beautiful, natural world, and it's not so pristine any longer, not by a long shot. So we are destructive. It is not difficult to imagine another species coming here, looking at this world and seeing the apex predators, humans, thinking they're very intelligent, but they're they're really difficult, and we don't want them around. We can do better with this world than they are. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're not right. But you know what? I'm a human being. I'm siding with my species here. And I think we have a right to uh, try to fix our own problems without another species interacting with us in a clandestine manner that has been going on now for a long, long time. I'd like to know what's going on. So no, I think that statements coming from individuals who are Absolutely certain that they are right and that there's no disagreeing with them, I think is it's foolish for one, but it's also potentially very dangerous. So I'm glad, I'm glad that person, uh, Paul or Peter asked that question. Peter, yes, thank you. Yeah, and there's
0: a whole plethora of areas we could get into there to to take the conversation a different way. But you've got a day to get on with, and it's been wonderful talking with you, Richard. Um, I would just like you to to mention what you're working on at the moment. Um, you mentioned earlier a book on underwater submerged objects. Um, That's if right. you want to talk anything about that or what you're working on,
1: sure. Yeah, I, I'll gladly. Um, thank you. So, uh, I wrote two very large volumes of history called UFOs in the National Security State, and ever since I wrote those, I've had people asking me, what about volume three? Well, that will happen. <laughs> um, but I've written a few books in between in the interim, and uh, I'm writing this book now. So this is, I think will be the first ever true history of, of water-based UFOs. There's been some very good work on water UFOs in the past. I think uh, most notably by the late researcher doc, uh, uh, researcher Carl Feint, who just died a few years ago. Carl did fantastic work on this. Uh, there was also a book years ago by Ivan Sanderson called Invisible Residents, which is a fine book. But uh, these are not histories of, of USOs, that is, unidentified submersible objects. So what I've done is uh, I got into this about a year ago on my website, which is richardolanmembers.com And um, I did a little bit of quiet research there on some water-based UFO cases. And I just threw myself into it about a year ago. And I thought, I want to put this together. I, I just became obsessed by it, to be honest. I don't have a lot of experience over the water. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a water person. I'm not even a great swimmer, to be honest with you. But, I, uh, but I've studied these water-based sightings in great detail now. And so what I've tried to do is to collect them all, analyze them to the best of my ability, and to, to include the cases that I think are actually legit and to write about them the best I can. I'm getting it illustrated as well. So it's going to be a very large book. I've got uh, 300 completed pages right now. And that takes me to the beginning of 1980. (laughs) So I've got a way to go. But it's actually coming along very well. I'm excited by what I have. It's, it's, It's the most engaging book project I've done in a long time. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I haven't done much with it in the last month or two only because I had a recent event uh, in California, contact in the desert. And, uh, and then now this David Grush news has come out and it's kind of taken my attention here, but I mean, I'm anxious to get back to that. And, and I'd like to finish that book by the end of this year. I think it would be a useful book for the field. Uh, It's something that we don't have. And uh, so I'd like to get that done when that's finished I do think the time is right for me to, to just uh, continue on and try to finish volume three of UFOs in the National Security State, which has hung over my head for more than uh, 13, 14 years. So oh. I'll get that. Get that oh, going. that yeah. may end up in two volumes, two more volumes. Wow. Maybe a fourth. Uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm going to look over the data and see if I can do this in one more volume or not, and um, I'll figure it out.
0: Well, excellent timing. Someone asked last night. I was speaking to Graham Rendell, author and historian. Uh, someone asked him about writing about US, USOs, and he mentioned the, it wasn't his area of expertise. And someone should definitely do that. So, who who is this you're speaking about? Um, Graham Rendell. Um, excellent uh, author on Foo Fighters, some of his books going back to the 40s and 50s, wonderful historian. Um excellent. And yeah, local to me, friend of mine, um, well worth checking out if you get the chance. He's going to be I at will, the, like to. the Roswell event with Bryce Sable uh, in the next week or so. He'll be uh, speaking there as well. So Excellent. Yeah. Um, but Richard, fantastic speaking to you finally. I hope to have you back on before the end of the year would be a wonderful Christmas present. And, uh, Let's I, go for it.
1: I'll let you go on with your work and thank you very much for your time. Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of the Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked
0: a joint. Hi everyone. If you listen to the podcast on an Apple device, you can support directly by going onto Apple Podcasts and clicking the subscribe button. And for less than the price of a coffee per month, you can get early access to episodes, episodes in full, and no adverts or sponsorships like this one you're hearing now. It also supports directly to me at the podcast. So thank you very much. Also, don't forget to go and leave the podcast on Apple, a five-star review, and make sure you click the follow button too. Thanks.